welcome to the Abundant Life Church Podcast, equipping people to live successful Christian lives. I want to talk to you today about having joy under pressure. You know that uh, there are all kinds of pressures on us, aren't there? There's the pressure that we live in every day. It could be our jobs. It could be our finances. Uh, it could be our home life, difficult relationships. It could be world events. And on and on and on goes the list. But Paul, the apostle, shows us that rejoicing, rejoicing is our pushback against the external pressures that would otherwise try to crush you and me. Joy and rejoicing is the key. We come to the final chapter of our series here, chapter 4 in Philippians, uh, this short letter and we read and look in here as we come near the end in this chapter. We only have two weeks left in this. This week and next week, then we end this series on the book of Philippians that we started a couple months ago. But the first 13 verses of this chapter we're going to look at today deal with seven Christian attitudes as I speak today on having joy under pressure. The Apostle Paul wants you and I to see there are seven must-have Christian attitudes to have joy under pressure in the world that we live in today. And so today I want to break those down for you as we go through this verse by verse. And I want to tell you, if you find yourself limping towards the end of this year, let these inspired words truly make a difference inside of your heart as you go through the end of this year. I believe that they will as we take them to heart and as we do them. The first one is, if you're going to have a Christian attitude to have joy under pressure is, you have to stand Firm. Turn to the person next to you and say, stand firm. Say it like you mean it now. Come on. Don't be a wimp. Tell them, stand firm. Turn to the person on the other side. Tell them to stand firm. That's what the Apostle Paul says in verse 1. Here's what he talks about. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for my joy and my crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Stand firm. He ties this to the relationship of a soldier standing, staying faithfully at his post no matter what happens around him. That he knows the enemy is going to attack, but you and I are called to stand firm. The soldier's orders are clear. Stand firm. The Apostle Paul repeats this word stand firm throughout all of his letters. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. He says, stand firm and let nothing move you. Don't let anything move you. The way that you do that is you have to stand firm. Chapter 16, verse 13, stand firm in the faith. There are so many opportunities that the Apostle Paul tells us, don't leave the post where God has put you. You need to stand firm. Why do you think he repeats this, this theme throughout his letter, standing firm? I think Paul had a healthy respect for the devil's attempt to discourage you and me, the children of God. And he knew that uh, you and I would be tempted to leave our posts when the bullets of temptation start whizzing by our heads. So he repeats it again and again and again. Stand firm. Stand firm. Husbands, stand firm today. Wives, stand firm today. Parents, stand firm today. Children, young people, stand firm today. Singles, stand firm. Stand firm because running never brings you joy. That's for sure. 
He says you have to stand firm. You have to have a Christian attitude in your heart and your mind. You're not going to leave the post where God has placed you. Number two, you got to settle your differences. Verses two and three, you got to settle your differences. You got to have that attitude. You got to have that mindset inside of your life. He says, I plead with Udiah and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers who, whose names are in the book of life. This is, a, this is a important portion of scripture because he says you gotta have an attitude of settling your differences with one another. Paul next deals with a difficult and a very delicate problem inside the Philippian church. And it seems these two leading women couldn't get along with each other. One was named Udiah, meaning sweet smell, and the other was Syntyche, meaning friendly. And we don't uh, have inside of this passage what they were disputing about. The apostle Paul doesn't reveal it to us, but they were evidently well-known leaders in this church in Philippi who had a serious falling out. For whatever reason, sweet smell and friendly weren't very sweet or weren't very friendly to each other. We know that much, right, by their names. I wonder how these two women felt when they heard their names were read in public. Sweet smell and friendly don't smell very sweet. They stink and they're not very friendly right now. And they need to learn to settle their differences and come together. But the Apostle Paul is addressing this 2,000 years later. They stand for women who couldn't stand each other. And I find it really, as you look at this passage, very instructive that Paul doesn't give us very many details. And instead of taking sides, he simply exhorts these two women to settle their differences. That's a useful principle to remember because in most disputes, it doesn't really matter who started it because when animosity builds up, what happens, there's plenty of blame to go around, isn't there? But instead of focusing on the causes, Paul exhorts these two women to agree, and the word agree means to come to one mind. When you come in agreement, you're coming into one mind. Oh yeah, you still have an opinion. But he says to come into agreement, you have to understand that we are called to have one mind in Christ Jesus. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Don't let this year go without making a sincere effort to settle disagreements with other people that you have a disagreement with. And if you can't settle them completely, you can at least make an effort in that direction rather than not trying at all, right? He says, you got to settle your differences because that is a mindset that you and I will have to have to have joy under pressure. Third, he says, you have to resolve to rejoice. Can you say the word rejoice? You got to resolve to rejoice. That's his third command in here in verse four. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Now that's an exclamation point and you didn't give me that. So I'm going to do that again. Rejoice in the Lord always and I'll say it again. Rejoice. That's it. That's what he wants you to do. He says, I want you to rejoice. It's a short command, but it's probably difficult for us many times, right? You may identify with W.C. Fields who said, I start off each day with a smile and get it over with. Maybe that's you, right? Right? But the Apostle Paul says, listen, the rejoicing he has in mind is not based on outward circumstances. That's crucial because very often our circumstances are quite depressing. Where was Paul when he wrote these words? Well, we know that he was in prison. And we know that he was 
linked up with a guard by only 18 inches of chain, 24 hours a day. But he says, you know what? I'm speaking from experience here and I can still rejoice no matter what I'm going through. Rejoicing keeps you strong on the inside when there's plenty of pressure on the outside of our lives today. The word rejoicing means to make sounds or expressions of joy. You need to speak out joy. You need to sing praise to the Lord. It's, it's, it's not enough just to have joy in your heart and keep it there. You got to let the joy out. You need to rejoice. You need to sing for joy. You need to praise the Lord. Can I hear an amen today? Because you're a little quiet. He says, you got to let it out. For it to be real joy and real rejoicing, you need to let it out. Whatever that is for you, whether it's singing, whether it's praising his name, whether it's talking about the character of God, his attributes, as you speak them out and you speak them out in praise. Joy is an intentional feeling. That's for sure. It's intentional, right? And uh, I always love this story and uh, that I've brought to you before, but I love it because it's so funny. A woman wrote her husband, uh, wrote her husband, accused her of being moody. He actually bought her a mood ring. Do you all remember mood rings? Yes, right? You put them on and, and, and then they change color based on the mood that you're in. And he bought her a mood ring and pressured her to wear it so he could tell what kind of mood she was in. And this is what she wrote. We've discovered that when I'm in a good mood, it turns green. But when I'm in a bad mood, it leaves a big red mark on his forehead. don't raise your hand if you've been a byproduct of that one right the apostle paul says you have to resolve to rejoice in your life you're gonna have to resolve this so that you can have joy under pressure because that's a mindset that's for sure for Ask God for a gentle spirit. Wow, this is amazing. Verse five, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. The Lord is near. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Now, Greek scholars tell us this word translated gentleness is kind of hard to translate it very precisely into the English, but one writer calls it the quality of inner calmness. We sang about peace today, right? right? We sang about peace, that there would be an inner calmness. Listen to the way Eugene Peterson wrote this in the Message Bible. He translated the verse, make it as clear as you can to all you meet that you're on their side, working with them and not against them. I think that's an amazing quality. You're letting people around you know, listen, we're on the same side and I'm working for you, but I'm not going to work against you. Let it be clear to them. The inner calmness should be seen by all who know us. You know, often these holidays bring out the very opposite of that. Isn't that true? There's something about this time of year that offers ample proof of human depravity. That's for sure. And here's a simple question. Would the people who know you best consider you a gentle person? Would that word really even kind of pop into their mind when they think about you or to make maybe the question a little harder is, would the people you like least consider you a gentle person? That is really probably the real test. Anyone can be gentle around a nice person, but only the spirit of Jesus can enable you to respond gently to the people who mistreat you. He says, you need to let your gentleness be seen by all, that there should be an inner calmness that happens in your life because Jesus is the anchor of your soul. Number five, pray about what? 
Pray about everything. This famous passage begins with the phrase, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to who? That's right. King James says it like this, be anxious for nothing. Don't be anxious. Don't worry about anything to which I respond many times. You got to be kidding, right? How about you? As you're going, you're like, what? Don't be anxious. I feel anxious, right? Anxiety is a real feeling. There's a, there's a lot of anxious people. Maybe people in this room today, you're filled with anxiety right now for something that's going on, maybe out of your control. You're trying to think of the next step. You don't even know what's going to happen, the unknown, all of these things that drive this. And Paul is saying, you need to pray about that. You need to pray about that. It, it, but this is great advice, but it's a command. Do you know that most of the time you spend worrying is basically wasted emotional energy. Some years ago, a professor at a leading American university studied the, this about people who worry. His research yielded the following results. 40% of what you and I worry about never happened. 30% concern our past. 12% are needless worries about your health. And 10% are about petty issues. Only 8% of what we worry about are really legitimate concerns. That means that 92% of your worry time is wasted energy. I want you to think about that the next time you start worrying. That most of what you're worrying about isn't something even worth worrying about. Because you realize the Apostle Paul talks here, he's bringing out this of saying, you know, worry and prayer, they're opposites. You can't worry and pray at the same time. Right, church? They're like water and fire. You can worry or you can pray, but you can't do both at the same time. So when, when you take your burdens to the Lord, he replaces your worries with something much greater, and that is peace that surpasses and goes beyond and transcends our understanding. Verse 7, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I, I love that, that peace will guard our hearts that's a military metaphor for soldiers guarding the city gate from the inside. And when you and I pray, God's peace becomes a guard on our heart, protecting you from the cares of the world that could otherwise destroy you. That his peace will be a guard on the inside of your heart. Not on the outside, but on the inside of your heart that is protecting you and keeping you with an inner calmness. Six. Think holy thoughts. You know, if you and I are going to be people, they're going to have joy under pressure. We need to think holy thoughts. Verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Now, the principle behind what the Apostle Paul is saying is very simple here. He, he's saying, the sin always begins in the mind, but so does holiness too. When Paul says, think about such things, the command is in the present tense. Keep on thinking about these things that he just wrote about. Find what is true and think about it. Find the lovely and think about it. Find the virtuous and think about it. Do it in verse nine says, the God of peace will be with you. Now, if you're a Christian here today in the sound of my voice, you have within you the power to obey this command in this passage. You can literally change your mind. 
I don't think many times we realize that, but we can with God's help. And he says, you need to think about these things. Why? By remembering that all that is best is embodied in a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. And if you link yourself with him, you are joined with the highest moral power in the universe. You know, when the computer revolution began, the pioneers in the field coined a, a brand new word. And uh, we, we know that we were just, Chris and I were just talking to our kids last week about, you know, how we learn to type. And we learned to type in high school on a typewriter. How many people in this room learned how to type on a typewriter? Wow, there's a lot of people here that did that. Okay, I feel really good now. <laughs> Thought I was going to feel really old in the house today. But, but then there's, there's those of you that um, you learned to type on a computer, a word processor. How many of those are in the house as well? So we got a lot of those as well. And it's amazing. And let me tell you something. Those of you that learned how to type, on a, on a computer or word processor, I'm telling you something, you had it good. Because listen, when you were in it and you had to go back and correct it, you had to take the little whiteout sheet and go back and click, 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 erase all of that. Some of you were like, what? That's weird. Yeah, that really happened. That's true. Now it's like just, you know, delete, delete, delete. You go back and you get to change it. But in those days, the beginning of the part of, of the, the beginning of the computer revolution, the in, in those that are, those that are learning and the code to help us operate a computer, um, sometimes the neophyte experts entered the wrong data only to discover a universal truth. If the raw data is bad, the computer can't do anything good with it. What you put into the computer determines what comes out. If you put the right data in, the right answer comes out, and the reverse is also true for our lives as well. What is true of computers is also true of the human mind. Right? Did you know that the average person has 10,000 separate thoughts a day. That works out to about three and a half million thoughts a year. It's a lot of thoughts. Already, most of you have already thought probably about 2,000 different separate thoughts since you got out of bed this morning, and you're going to have 8,000 more before you go to bed. And then you and I are going to start over again tomorrow, right? And the Apostle Paul wants you and I to understand how important your thought life is because he brings it up and he wants you and I to get this and he puts it in the text and he's wanting to know, how's your thought life? How is your thought life? So many people struggle with negative thinking. Negative thoughts poison our minds. They are literally poisoned to our mind and ultimately what happens is they poison our soul. And you know, here's just a couple of the common negative thoughts or thinking if you're wondering what those are. Well, the, one of the first ones is self-pity. Many people live in self-pity every single day. And let me tell you, self-pity is a negative thought pattern. The Apostle Paul wants you and I to break it. Blaming is another one. I'm going to blame everybody else for my problems. I'm going to still blame my parents for what they did when I was younger because I'm a byproduct of that. And that's how I'm living today. Many people are just stuck in blaming. Also, the unwillingness to change. Oh, I can't change. Anger. Bitterness or negative thoughts. Your thoughts matter. Negative thinking leads to negative living. So I want to encourage you today, if you are living negatively, you need to look at your thought pattern on why you're living that way. Right? And it's more than the power of positive thinking here. Because the Apostle Paul, he kind of drills down into this and what this means. This is more than positive thinking. Our text reveals another possibility. He says, listen, you need to run it through this test. Is what you're thinking true? 
I mean, how many of you times have you stopped your thought pattern and said, wait a minute, is this really true? He says, whatever is true. Truth is the first test. John Knox translates it as this, all that rings true. You ever ever thought in your life that came up and you said, you know what, that rings true. Or maybe you've had another thought in your life that said, you know, that doesn't ring true to me. But you're running it through. Is it true? Do your words have the ring of truth about them? And what this happens is it rules out dishonest, untrue, and and unreliable thought patterns and talk patterns. Is it true? Is it noble? Whatever is noble, that means honorable, worthy of reverence. Are your words worthy of reverence? It's, it's referring to what's majestic. It, reverse, it refers to what is awe-inspiring. One, one person translates it as noble seriousness. Is the thoughts that you are having noble today? How about, is it right? What is right? That means in conformity to God's standard. Not my standard. Not your standard, but his standard, right? Not right in my eyes, right in your eyes, but right in his eyes. Is it right? Uh, You know, and it's so important that we understand it. Also, is it pure? Whatever is pure, that means what's undefiled, holy, and clean. It touches the whole area of moral purity. Is your thought life clean? You know, you've heard, get your mind out of the gutter. If your mind's constantly in the gutter, it's going to be filled with all of those things, right? Is it lovely? Whatever is lovely, this word is used only here in the New Testament. It literally means love towards. If your thoughts are lovely, you have love towards something or someone. That's what he's saying. It's it's used here, it's love towards, it has the idea of attracting loveliness as a magnet attracts iron fillings. One person translates as those things that grace attracts. Do your thoughts automatically attach themselves to what is beautiful and what is lovely, right? A thought may be true and even right, but still not be lovely. If it's not lovely, if it doesn't make you lovely, don't say it, don't think it, don't do it, don't dwell on it, and don't repeat it. Is it admirable? What is, what is, whatever is admirable, he says, that is worthy of study and contemplation. If it's admirable, it's worthy of study It's worthy of meditation. It's worthy of contemplation. Or is the thought pattern I have cheap? Some things may be true, but that doesn't mean that we should dwell on them. Right on, church? And that's what the Apostle Paul. He also says, is it morally excellent? Is it excellent morally? God's morals, God's standards, right? Without compromise, Right? So you don't have to lift the top off the sewer in order to know it stinks, right? I mean, you're with me. I know it stinks down there. I don't need to lift it to smell it. Just keep it buried. It stinks. Right? Is it something that God would approve? Think on these things. It's a command. It's in the present tense. Keep focusing your thoughts in these eight areas. How do you keep your thoughts focused in these areas? The number one way is by studying God's word and memorizing scripture. That is the number one way, more than power of positive thinking, all these great quotes by people, you begin to memorize scripture and you get it in your heart because you need to have what is life-giving. Scripture is always life-giving. You never have to wonder whether it's right or life-giving because it always is because it's God's anointed word. 
More than once, I, I found myself wake up in the middle of the night with thoughts of fear, something that's gripped me, a nameless fear. And in those, in those moments, I begin to quote, he who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Why is it there? Because you have read it, you have memorized it, and you bring it out as a weapon at that moment in Jesus' name. There is power in memorizing God's word, right? Because you're not always maybe gonna have your Bible in your hand or your smartphone in your hand, but when you need it the most, that word is in there so that you can bring out God's truth and speak it to that situation that keeps trying to crush you and destroy you or your family. As you begin to hide God's word in your heart, it will change your mind. It's slow, but it will change your mind. Number seven, learn contentment. Learn contentment is so important because verse 11 and 12, look how clearly Paul states this truth. Verse 11, I have learned to be content. He says, I have learned the secret of being content. Why did Paul have to learn contentment? Why, why wasn't it just given to him as a gift from God? The answer is that God is most glorified when we struggle through the process of being weaned from our dependence and on the things of the world that are around us. And the truth is, unless a mother weans her child, he or she will never grow up. To be weaned is to have something removed from your life which you thought you couldn't live without. Most of us live on an opposite principle. In our hearts, we think, I would be happy if I only had blank. You fill it in. But life is hardly that simple. We stay frustrated when we ought to be happy, when we ought to be rejoicing. And that contentment that we have comes from our confidence in God. Verse 12, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. And in case we miss it, he adds this phrase, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, and you know, really, it's easy to look at this and assume Paul means well-fed is good and hungry is bad, but that's not correct in this. Poverty and prosperity both have their good uses, and both can lead us astray spiritually if we would allow it. But if we take the words of Jesus seriously, even in Matthew 19, he talks about riches can wreck the soul much quicker than poverty can. He says you have to guard against that. He said, I know the way to contentment. I'm speaking as a man here inside of a prison cell. I understand. I don't have anything but the Lord. He says, I've learned the secret. What's the secret of being content? I think, the, <clears throat> excuse me, the phrases can be understood in verse 11, whatever the circumstance, in any, every situation. Those two phrases cover, we look to cover all that life has to offer. That the secret of contentment lies in understanding that nothing happens by chance, but everything is ordained by the hand of our loving God. Contentment is possible, and I realize that everything happens for a purpose. Whether I see it or not, whether I know it or not, whether I feel it or not. And usually we don't even understand it when it unfolds in our life. And often I never understand it even when I look back in retrospect. How about you? I don't fully understand all that. But knowing that God will give us the strength in every situation to do his will, that's what the Apostle Paul is getting to here. The phrase, all things, 
You have to look inside the context of Scripture. Paul's talking about being content in every circumstance, whether he had plenty or whether he had nothing. And he explains how he managed to live above the circumstances. He did it only by the indwelling power of Jesus Christ through the work of the Spirit. For him, the secret of contentment was not just a stiff upper lip or a positive mental attitude. He was content precisely because he learned to rely on Jesus Christ. You have to learn, and I have to learn to rely on Jesus Christ. That's not easy. You, you've got to have Jesus on the inside of you. There, there will be joy under pressure. I mean, are we who believe better than other people? No. Do we suffer? Yes. What makes the difference? We have the power of the indwelling Christ who gives us strength in all that we need. You know, show me a truly contented person, and I'll show you a miracle. In this fallen world, contentment cannot be explained apart from the supernatural power of Jesus Christ. It can't. The, the beauty is that if you're not a content person, if you haven't experienced that miracle, you can simply by learning to lean into Christ today and every day that you live, right? There's a man named Viktor Frankl. He was a famous Austrian neurologist, neurologist psychiatrist. I can't even get that word out. It's so long. He was a prisoner of war in Nazi concentration camps. Prolific writer, communicator about the power of the mind when you're going through the worst of the dynamics of your life. And he lived through those horrific conditions that were designed to crush his spirit. Designed to crush his will, to live there and stay there. And here's what he said in his book, Man's Search for Meaning. I've read this book. It's a short read. If you really want to see the power of having Christ on the inside and living through the most difficult circumstances of a Nazi concentration camp. Here's what he said. The last of human freedoms is to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. You still have freedom. He goes on to write, if you're walking in chains back to the same field that you left yesterday, go back to your bunk and hear the guards scream at you that it's time to get up and they're abusive and you're walking in lines out to the same field and you're grabbing a tool like a pickaxe and the handle's half broken off. This is what his life was like. But because of his analysis, he brought back these amazing truths for us that the Apostle Paul points out to us that inside of the human spirit, we have the capability to rise above our circumstances and to be stronger. If we just guide our thoughts and guide our attitudes, nobody can strip us of the opportunity to choose my attitude or to choose your attitude on any given day. You and I get to choose it. There is power in our thoughts through God's word and through his scripture. We know that the enemy is at work because he's attacking minds, he's attacking hearts, and he's attacking homes. Paul says, if you're going to have joy under pressure, you got to know what's on the inside of you. You got to understand this, that even though the world is coming to push, to crush your mind, to crush your heart for the very things that are life-giving, you got to understand that greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. That Jesus is enough. Jesus is capable 
then it's through the power of his Holy Spirit that he's going to see you through because Jesus is greater in us than Satan that is at work in this world to keep you from being crushed. And the way that we do that is we have to have these mindsets of Philippians chapter four that is capable to help us have joy under pressure. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Philippians 4 that reminds us that we can have joy in the midst of chaos, grief, circumstances beyond our control, the worry, the anxiety of our hearts, Lord. That, Lord, there can be an inner calmness through your spirit. And that, Lord, I know that there is people here, the sound of my voice, somebody that's sitting at home or at work today that is listening to this message that feels so crushed on the outside that it's almost like they're trying to gasp for breath. Lord, may your spirit come and minister, I pray, at this moment, at this time of need to let them know, God, that you are there with them and greater are you, Jesus that is inside of them than the work of Satan in the world. Father, I pray that today. I pray that today for every single person, God, that you have not left us alone, but you are here with us. If you're here today, sound of my voice, whether at home, and you say, you know what, to be honest today, John, I feel like I'm being crushed on all sides. I feel so perplexed, frustrated, numb by the circumstances that are coming my way, things that are going on around me, maybe things that are going on even inside of you today. Would you just at this moment, by a step of faith, just say, you know what, I'm going to raise my hand because I need God to come and I need him to minister to me at this moment, at this hour. Come on, would you raise your hand today and say, yes, thank you. Thank you for the many hands that are being raised up in the balcony, in the back, here in the front. I see those hands. Father, I pray for every hand that is raised in the name of Jesus. That, Father, I pray right now that, God, you would minister by your spirit and your power. Lord, to fill them up with your supernatural peace at this moment. Touch them, Lord. Renew their strength, Lord, that comes from you. Hallelujah, Lord Jesus. Thank you, God. Lord, may your word that we memorize in the secret place come out at these moments to realize we are not alone. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Father, to see us through, you are capable not only of today, but until you return, we pray this in your mighty name, that we would make the choice to rejoice in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen and amen. Come on, can you give Jesus thanks today? Father, thank you for the strength that you give us by your power and your mighty name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you enjoyed today's message. If you'd like to get in touch or would like more resources on how to live a successful Christian life, you can always find us at myabundantlife.com. Have a blessed week.